0: Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on The Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you again. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Welcome to The Fort. I'm excited to have Moses Kagan on with me today for part two. Moses is the founder of Adaptive Realty in LA, and he focuses on a niche market of multifamily um, in select neighborhoods throughout uh, the LA area. We cover a lot of ground today, really pertaining to the last 30 days and how he's seeing the world and how it's impacting his business. So enjoy the episode. Moses, I appreciate you joining me today. Let's just dive right in to LA specifically and the multifamily market. And just if you could give kind of a general overview of uh, LA, the multifamily market, and kind of how that relates to you.
1: Yeah, so uh, first of all, thanks for having me again. Enjoyed the last time and uh, looking forward to this one. Um, So in terms of the, the multifamily market right now, it's it's actually kind of interesting. Superficially, if you look at listings, the market is is pretty dead. In other words, a lot of stuff's been pulled, and there's very little uh, new products coming online. Uh, however, interestingly, if you're tied into the broker networks, there's a ton of uh, off-market action going on. One kind of like representative data point is I got a call from a fairly serious broker yesterday. Um who knows you know who knows that we're we're still interested in buying and we buy cash and everything? And he presented me with a with basically a list of of probably ten assets all owned by the same group that are basically all for sale. Some stabilized, some in various stages of being repositioned. And the pricing was nowhere near good enough to be interesting to us. So it's not, I don't think that there's like a ton of distress yet, but there absolutely is stuff that's, that's, that's there. It's just not like on the internet.
0: Yep. So back to kind of just the discussion on, um, on just LA in general, it's a broad question, but like, how is LA handling this kind of in relation to maybe what you're seeing other parts of the country? Is it the same? Um, is it going to, you know, are there are there things happening there that you're not seeing happening elsewhere? Or just what's the state of LA in general?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, California in general and LA in specific have um, opted to, uh, to be much more tenant-friendly than I think any other jurisdiction in the country. So in LA specifically, Effectively, tenants do not have to pay rent. I mean, they have uh, twelve months from the declared end of the emergency to repay rent that is not paid during during the emergency. And uh, the courts have taken what I believe is an unprecedented step. This is California wide um, of saying that they will not accept new uh, eviction filings until I think it is 90 days after the uh, end of the emergency. And California courts are sort of notoriously jammed. So what that means is that if you have someone who doesn't pay, let's say, I mean, obviously, like, you know, there are plenty of people who can't pay for a very good reason right now, and I get that. But let's say the emergency ends and then, and then someone doesn't pay, I mean, you can easily be looking at six months to get your apartment back. And I think that that is going to have a, a pretty large effect on a specific sort of owners of let's see, workforce housing, and particularly owners who are not particularly well capitalized. So yeah, I mean, I, I think California has, and, and I I don't I don't want to be in a position of saying that California is necessarily doing the wrong thing. Like you know, I think we have to be sensitive to people's situation, and things are obviously really terrible right now. But it does a little bit feel like like landlords are sort of being asked to to provide like an implicit stimulus to the economy, which doesn't feel great.
0: Yep. How, how are you, uh, handling situations like that with tenants? Um, can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, we, just to give everyone kind of some context, uh, we, uh, sort of got renovated our buildings. And so I don't know if you'd call them quite class A in the sense that they don't have, You know, swimming pools and fancy gyms and that kind of stuff, they're not highly amenitized, but they are very nicely fixed up and in cool neighborhoods. So our tenant base in general has weathered this uh, storm pretty well. Rent collections for April 1st were north of, I mean, like as of April 1st, they were already like 85%. And I think, I mean, they're somewhere in the 90s now. So we're actually in very good shape. I think that that will deteriorate a little bit as as time goes on. So, you know, I'm certainly not sitting here crowing. And I also, I mean, genuinely, I appreciate the tenants because, you know, they have been, they many of them, probably all of them know that they don't have to pay. And it's been pretty amazing to watch. I mean, I'll tell you what, how we've sort of approached it in a second, but, um, it's been pretty amazing to watch this group of people who, you know, they're not under, they can't be evicted right now. I mean, eventually they could be, but, but they're, you know, they sign leases. And, and for the most part, uh, with very rare exceptions, they're, they're doing what they said they would do. And I mean, I think that that's kind of a good lesson for landlords. Generally, it's like, look. Well, not, not every tenant there's plenty of people who are who misbehave and all that kind of stuff but like the vast majority of people seem to wanna do the right thing which i can't tell you how much I appreciate
0: yep when you say that they don't have to pay or the state has said that is it you don't have to pay but you do have to pay it back and does the landlord have any recourse on you know filing something against their credit or filing some type of uh, judgment on them that you know, kind of carries eventually. with them if they go if they go lease somewhere else. That that new landlord will see that that's on their credit.
1: Um, eventually, but the problem is that so specifically, what they what they don't have to pay now. Once the uh, emergency ends, then they will have 12 months to pay. If they don't pay after the 12 months, yeah, you can go sue them in small claims court or whatever. And I'm sure that that's going to happen a fair amount, but. Like, I mean, good luck collecting a lot of them. Oh, know? for
0: sure. Yep. If, if you are doing any relief, is there a specific process, best practice that you're doing, documenting it or anything that maybe somebody could learn if, if they're in a similar situation?
1: Well, I'll tell you what I did, which, you know, and this was not what I was intending initially, but um, this is actually some advice that came from um, our biggest LP. And I mean, I've, I've, I just can't thank him enough. He's like very experienced. He's lived through a bunch of these. And he asked me what I was doing. And I kind of gave him this whole song and dance about lease modifications and blah, blah. And he was just basically like, chill. <laughs> he was like, like, the government is going to stimulate. There's going to be unemployment. There's going to be programs. Just relax and tell your tenants to relax. Just tell them, like, obviously, we understand if they can't pay. And just tell them that, like, they should not worry about it, and that we would get back to them in a couple of weeks once things are clearer about, you know, in terms of government support and unemployment and everything. And that was the message that we gave everyone. And, you know, obviously there were a few exceptions. There had a couple of people who who took this opportunity to make, like, a political point about the relationship between private ownership and rent. I mean, it was kind of it was funny, actually. But the vast majority of people who are like, they're good people who want to do the right thing. They just literally could not on April 1st because they didn't have any money coming in. When you say to them, hey, look, like, chill. <laughs> like, like, make sure you're applying for unemployment. Do what you can to get whatever help you can get. And then, like, let's just talk about this um, later on. And it just kind of removed a lot of the anxiety and uh, which, which I think gets gets sort of translated into aggression. Like there's, there just wasn't any, it was like, we're in this together. Like we're not going to even if we wanted to, we couldn't evict you right now. So like, chill. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think, you know, over time, what's how ha- it's interesting, like a lot of, we have a lot of roommate situations in our portfolio. And so we have a bunch of, um, a bunch of units where, like for example, two two of the roommates still have their jobs and one doesn't, and so I was expecting that a unit in that situation would not pay. But it turns out that what they've done is the two people who could pay paid, and the one who didn't did it, it. Like, which is interesting. It's not binary. I would have, if if you had asked me to bet before this, what would have happened? I would say they just like they would have not paid for the whole unit, but. They they kind of partially paid, which is great. Like that's totally reasonable. Like that's that's exactly what you'd want to have happen. And then they've gone a step beyond that, which is that the vast majority of these situations, the roommates are sort of like working it out amongst themselves. They're coming to us and saying like, look, you know, persons A and B have their jobs and they want to stay. They love the apartment. You know, person C can't. Um, person C is going to move home with their parents or whatever can you give us a little bit of time to get another roommate? And then maybe, you know, and then maybe asking us to forgive a portion of the rent while they're getting a new roommate. And like, that seems like a perfectly reasonable outcome. And it's not, if I had had to forecast it in advance, I wouldn't have, like, that's not what I would have thought would have happened. But it's like a bunch of smart, like, well-intentioned people trying to do what's right and i you know again i'm i'm incredibly thankful and appreciative that they're doing that
0: um on just quick quick question just on that note when you have roommate situations is it one big lease that all three roommates are on or do you sign individual leases with each roommate
1: no uh good question we have experimented a little bit with that with sort of more of a co-living type arrangement um, where we lease or student housing type arrangement, we're, we're leasing sort of on a bedroom by bedroom basis. But the vast, vast majority of our portfolio is conventional leases where everyone's joined severally liable.
0: Got it. Well, we've made it through April. You know, I know you don't have a crystal ball like nobody else, but what are you just kind of seeing or thinking for May, June, July, kind of through the summer, uh, getting worse, getting better, staying the same?
1: Well, I think, I mean, I think that May 1st is going to be worse than April 1st. Um, By how much is an interesting question. I don't think I have enough of a read yet to be able to tell. And then beyond that, I mean, I just, I think it just really, it's going to come down just like for everyone else to uh, when the economy reopens, specifically when Southern California reopens and um, the extent of government stimulus. You know, like in a lot of those roommate type situations we have, you know, maybe the rent on one of those three bedrooms is three thousand dollars, and so each roommate's only responsible for a thousand bucks. Like, if they're getting the full unemployment benefit, you know, that that's actually they should be able to make that rent, like no problem. So uh, I'm I'm actually cautiously optimistic, but you know, uh, but but we would prefer, of course, that the, <laughs> that the economy reopen and people get their jobs back and and we all kind of move on. And I and I should say that. Uh, you know, we're still signing leases. Um, in fact, I've been kind of pleasantly surprised by the um, by the leasing activity. I mean, we've got some some credits and some incentives and stuff in there, so it's not. I mean, effective rents have come down a little bit, but not a huge amount. And there's like definitely leasing velocity. Like, it feels like if if this COVID thing wasn't going on, it feels like it would have been like a great summer of leasing. And so. So yeah, it's going on and it's going to be worse than it would have been, but there's definitely demand.
0: Are you doing virtual tours? Or are you doing in-person tours? Or how how are people leasing right now?
1: Yeah, it's mostly it's virtual um, until they're very serious with a walkthrough thereafter where like the leasing agent goes and opens it up and then like lets them walk through themselves. And then we're doing like a ton of extra cleaning and that kind of stuff to try to make sure that we're not, you know, helping uh spread stuff.
0: Right. Do you foresee just kind of thinking more long-term that there will be a, maybe a new wave of tenants that are interested in your properties, maybe folks that were planning on maybe buying something that are going to hold off or, you know, folks that might've been in an even nicer apartment that are kind of taking a step yeah. back?
1: It's really hard to tell. Um, one thing to say is that a big chunk of the market is kind of like seized up a little bit right now because even someone who let's say you're in a five thousand dollar a month apartment and you've lost your job and you would ordinarily downsize, there's kind of like no penalty right now to moving so because you know so I think that things are a little bit sort of in suspended animation, and that's why when i so there's there's probably pent up demand, but I should also say that on the other side, like so people who would have been would ordinarily have been able to afford our three thousand dollar apartment. Who maybe now maybe maybe now there's going to be more vacancy uh, for cheaper units, like less well fixed up or less well located units, and they might sort of drift down. If that makes sense. So so it's really hard. To, I, I don't until it's just going to take a while for all of that to shake out.
0: For sure. Uh, going into this, did you have anything under contract to purchase, or was there anything in your pipeline that you were
1: buying? Yeah, we had we had one deal that we had actually just removed contingencies on. Um so it went firm. Um we actually are still gonna buy that. And uh we didn't even read we have a company policy against retrading. And I <laughs> I really thought about it, but I think but but we decided not to. So we all we did was we asked the seller to extend closing by I think three months. So we're still gonna buy the thing. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a well located uh asset and and I thought we were getting a pretty good deal to start with. And so, you know, I don't I feel good about it. So yeah, but we're so basically we asked for more time, but we're still gonna do the deal.
0: And what's always uh fascinating me about you and and in, uh, in particular just the business model on those deals. You're very often closing all cash or with very very yeah. little debt so uh, you know getting your financing to be able to buy it wasn't something that you really had to worry about, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean we uh, we always purchase all cash. sometimes we use some debt to fund the rehabs after we already own it but yeah no it's uh, it makes things a lot easier. and of course you know in this environment if you can if you can do that if you can close all cash, you ought to be able to expect you know you ought to be able to get a discount um and and more of a discount than you could have gotten two three months ago, but yeah it's 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 our investors are kind of thinking about things like we're we're in some ways we're like in the capital deployment business, so they actually it's it, they, they, we're we're not short of capital generally we're more like short of deals, so from their perspective, pushing more cash into the deal is not bad
0: yep it gets uh yep, it gets deployed. Have you, uh, are you seeing any things in, are you having to deal with anything in the capital markets, a refinance, uh, anything that you can shed light on what you're seeing in the capital markets as it relates to your specific product type?
1: Yeah, so I have a couple of data points there. So we did, uh, I put this on Twitter, we got called our pants down on one deal where uh, we had bought one building or mid rehab, and then we had the opportunity to buy the property next door, and we did it without an advance agreeing to an increase in capital contribution from the LP. Like we, we, he signed off on buying the other property and we actually did use a little bit of debt to buy that one. So our idea was to then go and get a construction loan and a little bit more equity to, um, to complete the the enlarged project. And so we were kind of like midstream there and, 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 uh, got the door slammed shut. And of course you don't want to like raise equity right now if you can avoid it. Um, although I guess we'll talk about that in a second, but so we went to a a construction lender with whom we have a relationship and shockingly like doors are open, happy lend money. I mean, they actually, we signed an LOI and then they retraded a little bit after that, but still totally reasonable. Like the rates, you know, very, very inexpensive. So, you know, and the leverage is still pretty low. So, I don't want people to think that that's like indicative of what's going on more generally in the market. But, you know, this is a bank who is happy to put more money out at, you know, what rates that I think are still quite, quite reasonable. Um, uh, Well, and then on the stable, so that's on the kind of the pre stabilization piece. On the post stabilization piece, we have, I'm trying to think of the total capitalizations project, maybe like three and a half million dollar project that um, we are just finishing lease up on. And so ordinarily, this would be the time when we would be running around like crazy trying to get our our refinance to take that capital back out and give it back to the investors. we there there are there do appear to be loans available to do that, but the rates are, in my opinion, the spreads really wide. Um the so rates are high relative to the tenure. And I'm just because the unlevered yield on that project is kind of fine. I mean, it's not like it's a little worse than what I would have been, than I would have liked it to have been, like as the last few leases are getting done with lower rents, effective rent. But um but it's still fine. So um what we've chosen to do there is kind of to slow roll the refi because I think that um uh, because I think that the, the spreads are going to come in and rates are going to come down, and uh, and like I think the capital markets have kind of experienced a shock. And unless you're desperate to access them right now, it's just better to like let it relax, let the lenders figure out like where you know what's going on and what they need to do, and and then I think that market forces will take over again. I mean, basically, like if the ten years where it is, like we, you know, mortgage rates have to come back in.
0: To give people perspective, uh, what would you have been able to get that loan at, call it 30, 60 days ago, and then what are what are you at today, and, and is it agency debt, or is it conventional financing?
1: This would be bank debt. Um, so we have we generally borrow from local banks. We, do, we have done some um, small balance loans with Fannie and Freddie, but uh, for various reasons, it's sort of like better for us to do to just use local banks. I think there has been probably almost a 100 basis point increase in the in the in the in the uh, interest rate of the loans. And that's at a time when I mean obviously the 10 year has has bounced around a little bit, but I mean I think it's down overall since then. Um and so uh, so yeah, so there's just a lot more spread, but you know, I got an email from from a loan broker today announcing that the spreads had come in or that that rates had come down twenty five bps. like I just basically think that the banks ultimately are in the business of putting money out they're it's a competitive market for them, like there's a lot you no, know, and as more and more banks kind of get their under them and kind of get get to grips with the situation they're ultimately going to want to start lending again and then competition will drive the rates back down so like if if you it's just a question of timing like we can afford to wait because the unlevered yield on that that deal maybe it was going to be maybe we were forecasting like a six and three quarters or something and like now maybe it's a 6.4 i don't know i've not run the numbers recently but it's like okay you know, so we'll build up a bunch of cash on the on the balance sheet, and then uh, when we do close the refi, we'll just have a bigger distribution to the to our capital partner, and it's fine.
0: Yep, I think I'm going to name the title of this episode "Just Chill." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get to equity in a second, um, but before we get to equity, how are you? And even as we finish this conversation on capital markets, like how are you? finding what the value or, of pricing uh, is going to be what are, what are you looking at differently or changing in your kind of underwriting to be able to kind of get comfortable with a number?
1: Well this is gonna I mean this is gonna floor you and and probably a bunch of your your listeners too. yeah I literally do not look at comps when I buy stuff. I don't care. Like I care very very much about uh, the rental comps. And particularly the rental comps in our portfolio, right? like I care very, very much about what the yield's going to be, and the rents are the driver of that. I, but I don't focus at all uh, on what other people have paid for similar assets because because I just I don't really care i mean there's there's just and I, I can't tell you how often uh brokers are like, "Well, this guy just paid X across the street, and I'm just like, I don't care. (laughs) Never say that to me again. What what am I going to do with that information? I actually have to remind myself not to be rude about it because it's so frustrating to me. Like, I don't care what I just don't care. Um, The comps, the, the one place, and this is all because we don't sell, right? So we're not underwriting an exit at the time that we're buying it. We just, that's just not part of our model. We do care about the comps from the perspective of the refinance. Right. So like, it's not, Completely crazy to look at it, and I, so, and I think likely we're gonna print some comps over the next couple of months that like don't help me um, in terms of absolutely maxing the value, the, the appraised value of my finished product, and therefore maxing the proceeds. But like, I think an important thing to say is okay, so we don't get hundred percent of the equity out, or we don't get you know eighty-five percent of the equity out. We get eighty percent out. We get seventy-five like. It's it's not good for me as a sponsor because I would like to return as much capital as possible and get into my and get into my promote right. more quickly, yep, but like whatever, the investors are fine with it, you know, so they got seventy five percent of their money instead of eighty five. It's like they're it, they don't it's not the end of the world from their perspective. And in fact, as I said before, if we even had to carry the things unlevered for a while, that would still be okay. So it just doesn't. It's the comps. Like, yeah, I mean, maybe I keep an eye on it. Sometimes I I remark. Sometimes every once in a while I see one. I'm just like, you know, thank you, because I just made my refi a lot easier. <laughs> but 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 very often we're taking less money than the on the refi than the bank is offering because we care about like we, we're we're we pay a lot of attention to the debt service coverage. Like we want to make sure that we don't ever find ourselves in a position where we can't pay our loan.
0: Right, or you're calling so, capital.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we don't even really, it depends on the deal, but we generally don't even have the right to call Kendall. Like when someone invests with us, they're not like, it's not like an unlimited checkbook to hear, save the deal later on, right? Like like in extremists, obviously we would do that if we had to, rather than losing the building. But I, as I say to a uh, uh, prospective LP, is like, that would be like a big failing on my, own. like from in our business model, me having to come back to them and say, can you please put more money in? I would regard as like a, uh, a failure on my personal part. So it's not like it would never happen. Like if it had to happen, it would happen. Like that's you're not we're not idiots, and neither are our LPs. But um, but we really try, we're really trying to avoid that. Um, so that's the so so, uh, so that's the, the story on the comps is that because often we're not even we don't necessarily even want to take all the money we could get on the refi. So okay, so someone prints a bad comp or a couple of bad comps or whatever. It's not it's not the end of the world.
0: You had a good tweet the other day just uh, talking about a 15% drop in rents doesn't mean a 15% drop in purchase price. It's actually more than that. Can you spend like yeah. one or two minutes just kind of walking through that uh, explanation you gave? I thought it was great.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, real estate is like your classic high fixed cost business, right? So so even even separately from the leverage, you've got, I mean, depending on the building for, you know, for multifamily, you're probably talking, uh, you know, operating costs for the building of anywhere between 25 and 40% of revenue. So if you drop rent 15%, you're, it's going to have an outsized impact on the NOI. So like, I mean, right away that, that, that's like a, that, that's going to translate into a, into a big value drop in terms of, uh, what we're willing to, what we're willing to pay.
0: Yep. So, are you? uh, I know that you traditionally um, have raised funds and 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 have funds. Are you currently raising? Do you have capital already raised and on the sidelines waiting, or like, what's the environment for equity look like to you right now?
1: Yeah. So um, we we went into this crisis in an interesting situation. So we had we have just finished putting out Fund Five. Um, we actually, this is an interesting, interesting story. So that, so fund five was 12 million in total, a little over 12 million total equity. And we had the right under the fund docs to lever up to 50, uh, 50% loan to cost. So we could have done 24 million in projects. Roughly we've chosen just given. and, And by the way, I should say that it's entirely in our financial interest to do that, right? Like we get our fees are, are, are determined by the total capitalization of the project and of course, like the more leverage in theory, like the, the larger your carry is, like all the all the incentives push us towards levering up and doing as you know as much as we can with that fund. But we have actually decided to not buy anything else with it. And so the total, we'll do, a, we're going to use a tiny bit of leverage. I think we'll end up doing like 14, 15 million in total capitalization for that fund. So what I'm trying to do is we, we kind of, and the reasoning is just like, look, like we don't know what the debt market's going to look like. We don't. We don't know what the rents are. We, you know, we have an idea, but we're not sure about what what rents are going to be when we start to finish these projects. Like, let's not put ourselves in a position where there's any kind of vulnerability to to uh, to not being able to refinance uh, bridge debt. So, so what I'm saying is, I guess we had this fund which we could have sort of used some leverage and, and and bought more stuff, but we've chosen not to do that. We luckily came into this crisis with, um, a big allocation for big for us, uh, from, um, some venture capitalists who, uh, have, have had some exits, um, and are looking to place specifically opportunities on money. And so we have a bunch of dry powder there and that's, um, the deal that we're moving forward with is an op zone deal. And I actually have two offers out right now on other op zone stuff, So we're definitely buying for that with respect to non-op zone stuff. um, We don't have any dry powder that's sort of like documented right now. Um, When we're not doing a fund, we have like five or six families who uh, can and do sort of write checks for entire deals, like, like joint ventures with us, Um, you know, we'd all write a check for 5 million bucks and just partner with us. Um, So, I've been talking to those families and the message from them pretty much is like, look, like we're not super excited to do anything. But of course, if you find something that's really special, like definitely call us and we you know, we do have the money. So we're not like totally naked right now in terms of non-op zone capital to deploy. Um, but I think we're going to make a decision over the next couple of weeks about whether to pursue a formal kind of programmatic joint venture where we get one group to write, I don't know, a check for 20 million or something. We go for non-op zone deals and we go do that. Or whether we um, we go back and just raise another one of our funds where people write smaller checks. And it's, it's always a, it's a challenge because on, on the one hand, dealing with one partner for for the whole thing is really easy. I know you do that, Tom, and it makes things real real simple. Um, on the other hand, we have this group of investors who have been following us since Fund One, you know, with 100k or 500k or whatever, and it just doesn't necessarily seem like great to sort of say to those guys, "Hey, thanks for following us for like, the last whatever it is, like six years, yep. <laughs> seven uh-huh. years. Like, <laughs> like we've graduated. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> yeah. like, that's you know, that's not that's not a, that's not a fantastic message to send to people who to whom we basically owe our entire career." So you know we'll we'll see which direction you know we go and, and we'll make a decision probably in the next couple of weeks and then and then go start getting stuff in writing.
0: I didn't have this um, in our notes before, but uh, Op Zone deals. We didn't talk about it last time. What what are you doing uh, in the Op Zone? Have you been given kind of a directive by those VCs that they're interested in the Opportunity Zone, and then what's the opportunity that you're chasing uh, to take advantage of it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's it's, just, it's insane, but the same business model that we that you and I have been discussing, and I write about, and everything works for the op zones. Like, it's just it's a normal value add multifamily doesn't come close to passing the op zone uh, substantial improvement test because you you need to base you need to invest a ton of money into the property. But of course, because we got renovate these buildings, like we do, <laughs> and then insanely, in my view. Um, some of the neighborhoods in which we've been doing business forever were designated op zones, which is, like, I, would, I mean, I can I can just tell you that like East Hollywood in Los Angeles, California did not need to, like any more capital directed to it. Yep. Like it, like, <laughs> it was not an, like an undercapitalized market, but yep. like through the whatever process was uh, gone through in the governor's office, it got designated as one. So so yeah, so we'll you know we're basically doing exactly the same model that we have always done. There's a, a few tweaks. You have to wait a little longer on the refi, and um, and because of the tax benefit, you're maybe willing to do a slightly worse deal with Absol Money than you would be with Fresh Capital. But otherwise, it's basically business as usual. Oh, and I should say there's uh, it's a little bit more of a pain in the ass from a structuring perspective. Just like there's more LLCs and legal fees and everything and. And uh and that's just life and it's worth it because the the tax benefits so good.
0: And and uh from a VC perspective or whomever the investor is, it is, as long as they sell and then they dedicate that those proceeds to uh an op zone entity, which I guess is the entity that you control, is there a time window that the money has to be deployed or once it's in the op yeah, zone? entity? it's, a,
1: it's a, well, it's a little complicated. So I think and you no one should take this as legal advice. Everyone should, you know, consult their CPA and attorney and everything. I think they basically have 12 months from the exit for us to, for them to put the money into the entity and for the entity to buy the building. And then the entity basically writes a business plan that says, you know, here's what here is what we're gonna do to this building, this piece of land, whether it's build a new building or whatever. And as long as the entity sticks substantially to that business plan the investor i believe can can basically park excess cash in the entity bank account and then the entity spends that money in accordance with the business plan it's kind of like a safe harbor so that's so i believe that that's that's how it works now this was not uh, i actually don't know all the details here but my understanding is that this isn't like one exit so it's not like a one ticking clock for exactly a year it's like a series of them so yeah, so we, we're not we're not under the gun on any particu- to do any particular deal. It's exactly you know it's exactly what we like. We kind of have five powder, and we have some parameters about what kind of deals we want to buy, and then we're just sort of hunting for them.
0: Cool. And I don't mean to maybe re ask the same question, but if, if if a deal walked into your office today, what would the deal need to look like? for you to bring to those families that said, you know, we're not unbelievably excited, but if you find something, uh, bring Mm -hmm. it to us. Like, what does that even look like right now in a world where it's hard to kind of point your fingers to where the value uh, really is? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's a really good question. Um, You know, I should start out by saying, for people who haven't sort of heard me repeat this a million times before, in general, the way we think about the world is primarily in terms of what is the unlevered yield on cost on the project. And we have always sort of kept an eye also on the basis, right? Like you don't want to be into a property for more than it would cost to like build the same property next door. So we're trying to, to kind of be below replacement costs in addition to having an exciting unlevered yield. Now, in this current environment, I would say we are there's more uncertainty about what the rent is going to look like, right? Like there's, there's just so many different paths that the economy could take right now from, you know, uh, one way of thinking about it is 18 months from now in Los Angeles, like for a A rental product, like maybe the rents are back to where they were 18 months from now, like, you know, uh, you know, and, and but, another, but, but obviously they could be considerably lower too. So, so it's just, there's just much more uncertainty. So uh, for us, what that means is that we're going to kind of default or defaults wrong word. We're going to lean more heavily on uh, first of all on the basis, right? Like looking very carefully at can we buy even if we can't underwrite rents that are quite high enough to get an unlevered yield that we would ordinarily think of as amazing. If we think uh, if the entry price is low enough and the all in price is low enough, maybe you just say look, we have a long term deal that Los Angeles is great. And so let's just do it and like we'll we'll just trust that the rent will get there and hopefully they'll get there in 18 months, but it might be two, three years, but kind of who cares. Um, so that's one. And then the other thing is um we're gonna lean also more on uh on qualitative factors. Our business model, one one um shortcoming I would say of our kind of emphasis on on quantitative factors is that it can force us towards more marginal neighborhoods sometimes like in a quest for the yield, like you're kind of, sometimes you're like, well, you know, I'd love to do this deal here, but, but really to get the yield that I've promised my investors, I kind of need to go into this area. That's maybe a bit more beat up and not as exciting, but like, you know, where the numbers work a little better. So what I think we're going to do here is lean more into better locations. And just try and use this opportunity to get into those at a lower basis and just trust that the rents will come back there faster.
0: Yep. I love it. Are you continuing to make distributions uh, to investors or have you put any rule in place to maybe hold back cash for the foreseeable future just to create an additional margin of safety?
1: We held them uh, for Q1. And then we'll make a decision for Q2 a little later on. Obviously, um, one thing to say about our deals is, and this is a little bit counterintuitive, but um, we're not a huge cash flow play. What I mean by that is, because we refinance out such a large portion of the of the equity, like there's actually not that much cash. I mean, it's, there's there's it looks good on a on a percentage basis. Like the the cash on cash yields, when you refinance out 90% of the capital, like of the equity, obviously are really sexy, but there's just such a small amount of cash that remained in the deals that the actual number is like not that exciting, particularly if you're, you know, one LP who's, you know, done whatever 5% of the fund or something like that. You're just not, it's just not that exciting. Um, and so no, none of our investors are kind of, they don't, our investors don't, they're not the kind of people who are like expecting these checks every month to live on or pay their rent or whatever, or pay their mortgage. They're in it with us because they believe in the idea of owning good stuff, levering it up responsibly, and then like having the value compound from rent increases and and over time kind of refinancing again and pulling more capital out. So You know, we we don't get a ton of pushback when we when we suspend distributions for a quarter or something. It's not like suddenly I get a ton of phone calls being like, "What the hell are you guys doing?" You know, it's uh, everyone just kind of trusts that we're being prudent.
0: Yep. Same thing with us. Uh, We we held back Q two. We usually do our mm-hmm. distributions monthly, but we held back mm-hmm. all of Q2 and we told people we're, we'll reevaluate at the end of Q2 and might do it again for Q3. Um, yeah. I'd rather make them one big distribution at the end of the year than totally. you know, err on the err on the conservative side.
1: Absolutely.
0: I assume that you kind of lived through o eight o nine. Any, you know, besides this being a virus, and is there anything different you see now that you that was different than o eight o nine? Maybe negatively and
1: positively. So th- that's an interesting question. I uh, bought my first deal in very early 2008, and um, so and I, so I have a perspective on kind of what happened, but it's not a very like it's not a wide angle lens. It's like a very very narrow. I just wasn't experienced then. So the the big lesson that we drew from that was that despite our total inexperience, and I mean I if I. If I showed like what the model looked like, I don't even know if we had a model when we bought the building. It was totally naive. I mean, we just didn't know what we were doing. But we were only levered to sixty five L T V. And so cash flow got kind of tight. Like it 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 was basically like break even. There was no cash flow for a few months in there and I had a Fairly painful episode where the it was a building with a central water heater and it went out like during one of those months when we had no cash flow and so I had a, like my, basically my brother and I had borrowed some money from our parents to to fix the water to put to replace the water heater um, so that, that didn't feel great but uh, but uh, basically my point is that we survived with that building because the leverage was low. And so I just kind of think the same thing's going to happen here. I don't I mean I don't know how low rents are going to go. In LA, we don't have like an occupancy problem in general. I mean, to give you a to give you some context, I have 650 apartments right now. My current I have 17 vacant. Like it's it's not. I mean, and so obviously there are somewhere. People aren't paying, and so like in a in a normal scenario, they probably would have moved out already. So like the 17 number is maybe a little unfair. Like it's probably a little, it probably should be a little higher. But we don't have an occupancy problem in Los Angeles. We occasionally have a rent problem, where rents will come down 10, 15, maybe maybe even 20%. But but you can always fill your units as long as you're willing to bring your rents down and meet the market. Um, So that's, that's what I expect will happen
0: here. And if you're over leveraged, you can't really bring your rents down. So your, your your leverage play gives you that flexibility. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Your, your model, uh, 30 days ago was a lot more peculiar and now there's probably a lot of people that uh, (laughs) wish they had your model.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a weird, I mean, I don't know. This is, uh, I think viewed from a financial engineering perspective, what we do is a little crazy. I mean, it's not a little crazy; it's really crazy. It's definitely like not IRR maximizing, but you know, I mean, I like to sleep at night, and yep. <laughs> you know, and uh, and I'm, i you know, we're getting rich, but and we're getting rich a little slower than maybe we would have in other, you know, in other ways. But I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really have any complaints.
0: So. Yep. You, one of the things that I've, I've again appreciated about just our conversations and getting to know you better you're you're bulletproof focused on your micro LA market i think a lot of folks look at what's happening now uh maybe they were focused on multifamily and now they're like we're going to get into retail and hotel cuz it's going to be so cheap mm. i'm assuming you're not changing your focus no. at all um or will no. you take advantage of opportunity
1: no i mean look i i'm not i'm not averse um I'm not averse to doing something else whether it's multifamily in a different market or a different asset class in this market but it would really need to be like so screamingly cheap that like at least for right now now maybe six months from now if 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 things have kind of calmed down right now there's a little bit of a snapback thing going on where like there's a lot of people who are like okay it's a buying opportunity and ready to jump back in so prices haven't I don't think prices have come down that much. It, it, certainly some, but not not a not a ton. Not enough to like really change the risk reward on doing something that you don't know. So there's a moment, and I loved. I, I really just to, to to just uh sort of talk about your podcast a little bit i i I, i'm gonna blank out his name but the guy who you had on uh talking about buying all those office buildings in like the early 90s i think
0: yep andrew seagull
1: buying them yeah i mean and he was buying them for whatever whatever the price per square was like you know 50 bucks a square or something insane like that like that's a buying opportunity where you say hey i don't know anything about office but that's stupidly cheap like this, you know. Okay, so that, at that point, the risk reward changes, and you're just like buying for so lo- so much below replacement cost that you're like, okay, I'm just gonna figure it out. But I haven't seen those opportunities yet, and maybe they'll emerge, but I I would bet not in LA. And so, so yeah, the answer is no. And the other thing is like I just depend so much on leasing information from our existing portfolio. That's just such a huge advantage to know, okay, what are two bedrooms actually renting for? Not what are they like what are they being advertised for on Craigslist or whatever or apartments.com, but you know, what's actually closing? What is the real effect of rent? How you know, what's the velocity? So that stuff matters a lot to me. And so giving doing something else where I'm giving up that advantage, like again, I, I would do it, but it, it would have to be just ridiculously
0: cheap. Yep. Yeah, Andrew's. Andrew's great. He talks about, it's just like walking through the streets, buying up office buildings for 15, 20 bucks a foot for a couple of years. It was, it was his goal. Oh, I could have, I honestly,
1: I think I like you could talk to that guy for like three days.
0: Uh, is there anything that you, uh, you might have an answer. You might not. Is there anything you're hoping to hear out of Washington that you haven't heard already? As it relates to real estate, or just in general, is there something you would have done differently, or something you hope to hear uh, as this progresses on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know we're we're now a couple of weeks down the road on this PPP thing, which is the thing that, you know. So, and and we're in the you know we're our, we applied for a loan for a management company, you know, not not for any of the real estate entities, but because um, we, we you know we have payroll and revenues are going to go down. And everything. Um. Uh. So. So in that process we are we have our act together, obviously, in terms of record keeping, and we have smart people working on it. and we have we bank at First Republic, which is like a great kind of like private slash business bank where like if I call my banker right now, he'll pick up on the first ring. Like basically, we have every advantage that uh, you could have in this situation. And you know we don't have our money yet. I mean we have an approval, and I assume loan docs are coming, and we'll, you know, but so, On one level, yeah, it's been really fast. I guess they already are distributing money, but it does feel like, in retrospect, the way to do it would have been to funnel money through the IRS that already has all the taxpayer identification numbers and EINs and and, and just like, and obviously the IRS is monitoring the payrolls because you're paying payroll taxes every two weeks, so... So they they kind of know if you keep people on payroll (laughs) Um, and they could have just sent the money. And then, you know, to the extent that they needed to pull to claw some of it back, if you fired people, uh, they could just clean it up at tax time next year. So it strikes me that that in retrospect, that that was probably the way to do that. So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm sure there's a million Holes you could poke in what I just said and everything, but that from the outside, that that's all that feels to me like it would have been a cleaner process than what we're all going through now. But look, I mean, multifamily real estate is basically a proxy for like overall employment. I mean, that's what it is, right? So, I mean, I guess industrial is too in a certain way. It's just multifamily is maybe more in some ways like like closer to the to the to to the I don't know to the ground zero wherever. Um, so, I don't need anything in particular for myself or for our industry, although like what California is doing with, I mean, it'd be nice to be able to get your apartment back apartments back at some point, you know, like short of six months, like that feels a little extreme. Um, but overall, like I would say, I don't know that that multifamily needs direct help. I think it's just like, look, we, we all want people to have jobs. Um, you know, we're, I'm rooting, as, and maybe not as hard. I was gonna say as hard for my tenants to to get good jobs. as They are clearly. I don't care about it as much as they do, but I care about it a lot. Like we we want these people to succeed and be successful. And I mean, ultimately, I want them to go buy their own houses and move out. Like you know what I mean. I just we we want these people to do well, and so I'm just kind of rooting for all of these other businesses that are employing these people, and, and and for the people themselves to get help.
0: For sure. No, that's that's a great way to put it. All right, my last question. I didn't put this on our notes, so I'm sorry if it catches you off guard. If you had to make a bold prediction, maybe contrarian to the rest of the world, that 18 months from now, if we do episode three, we'll check back in on. Is there something that you're seeing or feeling or thinking that's probably uh, something bold that most people might not agree with you on right now?
1: Well, I don't know if it's bold, but I'll tell you, I just I just sent an email to one of our uh, important LPs and, and, and management clients. Um Arguing that I think that rents are going to come back to where they were faster than most people think, at least for for LA and for the for the stuff that we're that we're that, the kind of the projects that we're managing. Um, now, to be clear, I'm I'm not using those numbers in my underwriting for new deals right now. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm underwriting I'm, I'm underwriting a little rent, <laughs> um, uh-huh. but but I it it just it feels there's like a weird thing where well, at least so far the the job loss has really been um, concentrated among sadly among the people who can least afford it, uh, people who are you know um, uh, maybe less a little less educated and, and working in jobs that don't pay as much. But I think you know a, if this goes on for a long time, it'll of course ripple up into the more you know higher into the higher paid jobs. um so we don't so we want we want this over as quickly as possible. Um, and I also think that I, I think that there's going to be a snapback with not, not certainly not all, but a lot of these jobs that you know uh, restaurants and that kind of thing. Like I, I just think there's a lot there's going to be a lot of cooks and waiters and whatnot who are skilled and on the you know know how to do those jobs and are on the sidelines. And there's going to be a bunch of landlords who would prefer to have their 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 restaurant spaces generating rent rather than being dark. And so I think that people are going to be surprised by how many of these businesses come back cuz the landlord's just like, look, I already know you. Obviously you couldn't control what happened. You've been a good tenant for however many years. Why don't you start back up and like let me give you a little bit of a, you know, some some free rent in the beginning just to like get you to the point where you you know, you can you can restart. And uh, so so I think that that's going to happen maybe a little faster than other but maybe I'm
0: just a congenital optimist. Hey, I love it. It's a bold prediction. All right, man. Well, uh, your time is always valuable. And uh, like I said many times, it's it's been great to continue learning from you and, and getting to share kind of this industry with you and, and appreciate your time.
1: Well, likewise. And uh, I've had so many people say such good things about our last episode and also uh, all your other episodes. And I I mean, I just can't recommend the rest of this podcast uh, highly enough. I appreciate and, it. And um, oh, I mean, it's just you just have great guests and you're a good interviewer. So this is, I, I should say you have great guests and you're a great interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you. Thank you for letting, uh, for letting me on again. And uh, we'll be in touch soon.
0: Okay, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.
1: Cool, man. Thank you.
0: Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.